Hello everyone, welcome to Bike Marks. I know that it's probably weird hearing me say that because it's Callum this time and not Emilio. But here we are, I'm joined today by Realm W, a fantastic YouTuber who does video essays on politics and games, kind of like us. And we, we came together today to talk to you about a very interesting topic, user-generated content. Realm, do you want to introduce yourself? a bit more thoroughly than I did. Yeah, for sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Realm W. Um, I have a YouTube channel where, yeah, I talk about politics, video games, um, a little bit of philosophy, even though I'm out of my depth there. Um, I've been making videos for about a year now, um, and I, I've met a lot of really interesting people through it, um, including the wonderful people from Bite Marks. Aww. <laughs> oh, uh, I forgot. Uh, pronouns. My oh. pronouns are he, him, just by the way. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. I know it's not super exciting when it's just two cis dudes saying their pronouns, but like, uh, it's important, and I, I need to keep that stuff going. Yeah. Okay, so today we're talking about user-generated content or user-made content. And I, I have a question for you, Realm. Uh, lay it what, on me. What is user-made content? Well, um, user-made content, I think, obviously, what, what people's minds go to most um, is games like maybe Mario Maker or uh, Dreams much more recently. Um, where the game kind of provides you with the tool set uh, in order to create your own uh, things, basically, within the constraints of the game. Um, I think that also what people's minds might go to is uh, mods, which has been a thing for a very, very long time and are a very important part of a lot of game communities. Um, but also, I think we, interestingly, um, have thought about the idea of user-generated content actually expanding out into things that game communities kind of influence through the ways that they work um, and the ways that they have conversations about their games. Oh, okay. So would you say that things like uh, fan art and and even character creation in some games, is that user-made content? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Because uh, user-made content, you know, it's as much about the ways that fans of a game will interact with each other and kind of build uh, something more than just an individual interaction with the game. Okay, well, let's let's start this with a, a bit of um, a bit of a lighter note. What's your favorite experience you've ever had with user-made content? Just one of them. It doesn't have to be the best one ever, because I know that's hard to quantify. That, that's a very good question. Uh, I think what my mind would immediately go to would be uh, when I was probably 11 or something like that, um, I played a fair amount of Europa Universalis 4. Um, I was very bad at it. I, I still play it from time <laughs> to time. I'm still very bad at it. Um, but, uh, but you can't be good at those games. You can't. It's impossible. Yeah, I, I don't really believe it. I see the screenshots uh, people make of like their really great uh, games, and you know, I, I, I'm not going to say they're all fabricated, but you know what? <laughs> I, I, I'm not confident. You can, <laughs> you can do magical things with Photoshop's these days. Yeah, for real. 
Um, but I specifically remember, um, well, those games, Paradox Interactive games, have a really big uh, emphasis on, um, from a community standpoint, on mods and on these kind of collaborative projects that mods for um, Paradox games like Europe Universalis, like Hearts of Iron, will even have like higher teams to work on them. It's a very common thing. Um, and I remember on, like, the Steam forums for that game, um, back in probably 2016, there was this guy who was making uh, a mod for um, a Mars map, like, some kind of future scenario on Mars, and just, there was this forum thread that they had created um, where people could just uh, throw out ideas for different countries that they could create and kind of explain how they think that would have come about. And I remember spending just hours um, in that thread. I mean, I, I didn't even play the mod um, because I was so awful, but I would just spend hours <laughs> like thinking of these kind of intricate ideas and like interacting with this mod creator and kind of going back and forth on, on these things. That, that's just a really cool memory to me. Yeah. I think the the first one the first experience I ever had with like this may not be the first experience I've ever had with user made content, but it's the first one where I sought user made content out was I and I imagine with most people my age, Skyrim. Ah uh, yeah. Yeah, the Skyrim modding community was nuts. It went wild and it was just crazy to me. Like it it was it was like I had played this game for so long, and I hadn't even done everything in the game, but this community had just made it so much bigger that Skyrim can become a, a thing I can go back to every time now and have a different experience because I just downloaded a new mod for it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Skyrim is a really great example of that, and honestly other uh, Bethesda games as well that, like, mod communities can extend the the lifespan of a game by so much i mean this also is a thing with like grand theft auto 5 like all of these games you know you can you can experience like a, a, a effectively infinite amount of content with these things yeah yeah i um before we move on to the next point i just i do want to admit that uh i got so into the modding community that i i did a audition for several voice acting roles in mods that were going to come out like really big mods none of them ever worked out but it was it was that kind of thing you know where it could have been a real badge on my voice acting career if i had gotten the part and that's the great thing about modding communities and i I think a lot of people's like game development careers have started because they were just famous in modding communities oh yeah absolutely And, and even like modding communities even today still manage to kind of branch themselves off into their own like separate communities and fandoms like not even for um, a specific game but for a mod for a specific game i think that happened uh, most notably with uh, kaiserreich which is like a, a mod about what if germany won world war one for hearts of iron like that has its own incredibly dedicated fandom specifically for that mod that's a that's a really cool this is you know what like the last oh by the way uh we did another video together that's going to be available on realms channel that'll be uh we'll have the link to that in the description but in that video we talked about like a lot of the the bad parts of the gaming community about how how 
we we get kind of toxic and vicious towards each other um in and amongst all of the good like discourse that we generally have but there's a lot of like gatekeeping and toxic discourse but then you hear about stuff like this where someone just makes something and it becomes huge and that's awesome it's really incredible and it's also like a really awesome example of people just creating stuff not because it's it's not monetizable for the most part in these kinds of communities it's just because they like creating art and that they like creating things that people can enjoy and experience and prolong the the lifespan of a game that they like now um i do want to call back for a second you uh you mentioned that uh you can have almost infinite content on a game with a modding community but uh that that brings up an interesting question do you think that having user made content in your game like pre coded into it is kind of a sign of developers wanting to like ape that modding community vibe to to almost pad out their game a bit more i think um it can definitely depend on that point uh because there are definitely situations where that is the case and we have seen um, at least the idea from a lot of developers that, at very least, the idea of vastly prolonging a game's lifespan, specifically through games as a service uh, or li- live service uh, models for games, is a thing that they're interested in. Um, I do think, though, that in, in terms of creating a-, a system where players can create their own content... Um, it's not always necessarily quite as easy as creating the mechanisms for doing that and you'll end up with a good community um, because you you really do need to provide um, players with the tools that, you know, actually make that a fulfilling and enjoyable enough experience for people to do it. So I think there there does have to be at least some amount of care put into it in order for it to affect eventually be beneficial to the uh, developers yeah yeah um now we're going to do an interesting thing around here at the 10 minute mark is we're going to uh take a step back you know take a take a little trip through time to uh way back in the day let me just find it real quick uh, when user-made content was kind of first introduced. Now, when you think user-made content, you, you kind of think video games, right? Yeah, naturally. So, I think the first... Uh, I'm not going to say first, because I don't have that, that kind of uh, rock-hard, ironclad research... But one of the first uh, introductions of user-made content was for turn-based strategy games like Heroes of Might and Magic, where people would upload their own maps to fan-made websites, right? But if you really think about it, I think we can go a bit further and just say that most of D&D is user-made content. That's an incredibly, incredibly good connection there. Thank you. 
I yeah. thought you had more to say after oh, that. No. Well, no, I mean, it really is um, great because, you know, a lot of, um, especially early games, uh, took a lot of particularly aesthetic um, inspiration from that. But then, like, you know, there are, especially with the user-made content, you can see a lot of actual through lines and the kind of lifeblood of those early Dungeons and Dragons community was uh, fans who would be producing their own content, but also producing their own magazines um, around it. And, you know, ultimately, um, that is one of those situations where you kind of give players a tool set. And, you know, there obviously are modules that kind of you can go buy the books, so to speak, if you want. But you, you provide players with a tool set and basically say, you know, you, you can go along as strictly with this as you want to or as loosely as you'd like. It, it's kind of up to you. I mean, that's kind of how Dungeons & Dragons is designed because every new book that comes out is either a module with, with pre-written adventures inside of it that you can deviate from. Like, they, they encourage deviation from it. Or it's a... Um, it's just a book with new stuff for the game, like new classes and new player races. Well, not new classes, but new player races and new subclasses for existing classes and new items and stuff. They don't even give you, like, a a narrative, really, to to run with. They, they just introduce maybe a new continent and maybe a, a bunch of new items and things, and they say, Go nuts! Yeah, exactly. And, and especially online today, the the breadth of content um, available that people have meticulously developed to be that, you know, specific storylines, but often like character classes, even entire systems um, is, is really incredible. Just recently, actually, I was um, invited to join in on... Um, a Zelda-themed um, Dungeons and Dragons uh, campaign, which I think I believe is loosely developed off of D and D Five E. I could be incorrect oh, that, about that, but that sounds amazing. Do they have space for another? Um, I I could honestly totally ask because I think we did just have somebody um, have to leave, but it's this incredible system that someone has developed. There are all of these um, completely thought out um, classes and races and and even like outside of that thing that that stuff that kind of just exists online for anybody to use the uh the guy who's dungeon mastering it has developed this incredibly intricate um backstory for everything and it's really incredible and like this is kind of an experience that like nobody else is going to have at, at very least in the exact same way but you know especially yeah. when you have uh, like a dungeon master who's really committed to going all the way, like that is a completely unique experience that like no one outside of your group is going to get to have. Oh, uh, okay. And um, you know what? I just want to throw this out there real quick. So I I watch uh, Joe Cat videos a lot, as many viewers of this channel will know, because I bring him up a lot. <laughs> but uh, and if you don't know who he is, he did a series of animated videos called A Crap Guide to D and D. And he frequently got, um, I think, sponsored, or he just shared a lot of um, Patreon uh, links to fan-made content for D&D, where it would be like, uh, everyone's an, uh, a type of bird 
in this D&D and it has this whole world set up and you can download it for a tabletop simulator and you can download the books and stuff. And that's that's kind of where the the community is at right now is that they they found a way to turn their homebrew into finance. You know, they they they've that wasn't a good sentence, but it was a sentence and I certainly said it. <laughs> Um, but they, they found a way to take their homebrew content and put it out into the world. I mean, I have a book here. I've forgotten its title and I can't see it, but it's it's a fantasy story. I think it's called like Dragons in Autumn or something like that. And it's literally written about the D&D campaign that the the authors had with their friends. That's incredible. It, it, yeah. And like that's that's amazing. Like um, if you if you listen to the Adventure Zone, they're releasing New York uh, f- bestsellers, like New York Times bestsellers um, graphic novels of their D and D campaign. Yeah, and, and the incredible thing about that is that that began off of like as you were saying earlier, one of those pre made modules that it just kind of continued to diverge from um, until it became this incredibly unique thing. Yeah. And let's say that that is, um, I'm not going to say that, that, okay, let me, let me check my phrasing here real quick. I'm going to use the D&D homebrew, uh, community as like the peak of user-made content in, in the specific measuring system that I have. I'm not saying it's the best one. I'm just saying that at the moment, it is the most prominent, if you catch my meaning. No, that that makes sense. Okay, now let's look at the opposite of that. So, real quick, before I before I uh, start introducing some points, can I say to you? Remember when I uh, introdu- when I said that game, Might uh, Heroes of Might and Magic? Yes, where people used to upload maps. Yeah. So Ubisoft owns that, and there's a Heroes of Might and Magic Seven that uh, that is out, and I, I took a look at the the website, you know, just to see what it's like, and they said, and I quote from their website: "Make your voice heard for the first time. Power belongs to players. Log in to the Shadow Council website and take part in the game development." Vote for two of the six factions and promote your favorite features. Chat with developers, comment, share, and interact and influence. Each step of the way will grant its own reward. Make Heroes 7 the game experience you deserve. Hmm. Now, this isn't necessarily scummy, and this isn't necessarily bad user-generated content, but this is kind of... Showing how Ubisoft is not in touch with the gaming community anymore. No, 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 exactly. And and that's very a very interesting case where it's like, kind of, it is ostensibly some degree of user leverage and quote-unquote user-created content, but like, it's very much in in the context that the developer would like it to be and it ultimately is you know i think i think it is still some degree of user influenced content but 
it's not by any means something like we have been discussing where there truly is a, a large degree of player freedom. Mm, and you know what this is kind of reminiscent of for me is Bethesda's big scandal with paid mods for Fallout 4. Yeah, the, the Bethesda Creation Club. That was yeah. uh, really something. Um, and in that case, uh, it does claim that they are compensating um, the creators of the mods. And on, you know, ultimately... Yeah, they are, technically speaking, but, you know, creators are receiving 25% of profits um, off of the mods that, like, they created, and then, you know, the labor was the mod creators, and then Bethesda, you know, uh, automatically downloaded it onto your hard drive when you got the game, and then put a price tag on it, um, and that's, that's, that's their 75%. Yeah, it's... That's, uh, I'm I'm coming down off of that 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 wonderful floaty feeling that I had when we were talking about something cool that happens in the gaming industry, and I, it, yeah, reality is has thrown a bucket of cold water in my face. But here's why I was slamming on Ubisoft earlier. So this this kind of thing where they 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 bring in players as a part of the game development to vote for stuff and to make mods and whatever isn't necessarily just to sell more. It's also to take blame away from them if it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Because if Bethesda made the mods, which they did make several and they were lame, but <laughs> if Bethesda made them all the mods and they didn't work... Or Ubisoft made Heroes of Might and Magic 7 and it didn't have things that people wanted in them, then they would shoulder all the blame for that. And so they're they're trying to siphon user-made content to kind of hedge their bets. Like, if it doesn't work, oh, no, we trusted you guys and you clearly don't know what you want. And if it does work, it's like, oh, hey, look at how smart we are for including the community. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. And I think actually, interestingly, what that makes me think of a little bit is almost kind of a counterexample or a situation where you would <laughs> almost expect to see that kind of thing but didn't um, is No Man's Sky, which, you know, it does rely very heavily on its fan community. Um but they have continued to update that kind of with relatively little input from the community, um, you know, but still ending up actually kind of kind of pleasing people. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that uh, saying that it is kind of to absolve them of blame for what gets included because, uh, you know, you know, you guys asked for it or in the case of Bethesda, you guys actually made it. Um, you know, it, it does, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think No Man's Sky is an interesting example of a developer actually listening to their community. Because, you know, everyone made jokes about No Man's Sky for a long time, about how it's like, oh, you promised us the universe and you gave us sand. <laughs> and... So uh, disappointingly, there isn't that. much sand in the game. 
Oh, yeah, you, you <laughs> promised us the universe and you didn't give us sand. <laughs> There's no sand in the sandbox. What the fuck, guys? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they uh, they listened to the community and they they sort of made changes as it goes. I, I remember I had friends that absolutely hated No Man's Sky and I've never played it, but from what I can tell... The recent updates of the game seem to be way better. Oh yeah, the the game has improved massively. Um, I I still log on every every couple of months just kind of to see what they've added. I I was never really one of the people who was super into the gameplay side of it. I I always just kind of liked walking around. So I've kind of liked it since it came out. But <laughs> you know, it it genuinely has become a vastly better gameplay experience and that is because um you know they directly shouldered the blame for the state in which the game released and then listened to community feedback about how to actually make it better now like okay so when you when you have a game like like no Man's Sky or Little Big Planet or anything that that relies pretty heavily on user made content. Is that game successful because of your design or is it successful because of your fan base? Um this is actually I, I'm very happy you asked that because I have kind of had floating around in my my head for a little while and an idea about making um, a video actually about this question, and I actually do think it is about game design to a much higher degree than a lot of people seem to think, um, because it's not like just... Like design. Yeah, yeah, it's not just about um, creating a sandbox, and if you have, like, an environment where players have freedom, then that will automatically make your game successful or make it an enjoyable experience because it's not you have to be able to very specifically design your sandbox and the tool set you give your players um in order to actually make um the the rewards and goals the player sets for themselves fulfilling um and and fun to get to you can yeah kind i of, mean yeah. look at oh sorry no, okay. I keep doing this. I'm Go so ahead. sorry. Uh, think about like Biomutant. You know, it, it was this huge. Uh, everyone was super keen to see it. It was this really free and flowing sandbox that looks incredible. You could do so much stuff, and the design is just not there. Yeah, and and we saw this trend, this exact same thing play out um, over the mid, the early to mid 2010s. Uh, when open world games were becoming a craze and it was just getting into every single uh, new game, uh, particularly in franchises. Like, everybody had to have their open world game. Um, but, you know, as we continue to see time and time again, simply creating a, a sandbox environment for players is not enough. If you don't have the gameplay there to make that sandbox enjoyable and understandable to interact with for the player, then it's not going to work. Mm, exactly, exactly. I mean, I think... Uh, I promise I think. I think a lot, all the time, <laughs> frequently. Um, 
but there there are so many examples of of sandboxes that just don't work and i will give you some of them soon as as soon as i think of some yeah well in the meantime an example of a sandbox (laughs) that does work really well uh is super mario maker and um one of the biggest elements of that i think is like incredibly intuitive ui design which is not something wait 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 Whoa, 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 <laughs> Is Super Mario Maker a sandbox? <sighs> well, it, it's not exactly a sandbox, but it is a game that relies incredibly heavily on user-created content. And I think, well, in a sense, and I think that... Yeah, but I, I would say the sandbox relies heavily on, on user experience. So user-created experience rather than user-created content. I, I think that's actually a very good distinction to make because, you know, you're right that in, in many cases sandboxes um, don't have quite as much the interaction with other players' content as it is making your own for yourself. Um, mm. But I, I do think, though, that there are connections in the ways that um, games like Mario Maker or Dreams that are, are very structured on user-created content um, within a framework that the, the developers devise and um, user-created uh, experience in sandboxes um, where you're given tools to kind of create an experience specifically tailored to yourself and what you want to see in the game. Uh, I think there's a what? lot of, of carryover between the the ways you have to design those games um, in order to uh, facilitate the, the player being able to, you know, make what they want of your sandbox. Well, you know what? We, we both speak English relatively well, although evidence has proven to the contrary <laughs> in my case in this podcast. Um, but yeah, let's let's coin a phrase. Let's come up with a term, and I actually have one in mind for games like Super Mario Maker and Dreams. Let's call them toy boxes. I actually, I, I, I like that. And I'm presuming that um, the reason you, you call it that is because, you know, the game will provide you kind of with a specific um, set of with tools. The tools, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's really good, actually. Because it's it's the difference between sitting in a sandbox as a kid and getting like a, a a bucket and making little castles and whatever, and then pretending that you're in a desert, uh, you know, looking at a, a lost mine of what I was a very nerdy child. Uh, <laughs> you you're pretending that you're at like an excavation site or whatever, and then going to a toy box and picking out like a bunch of transformers and then making them do something that transformers don't usually do. Yeah, no, I I think that makes perfect sense. Um, And I I think that that distinction between uh, situations where you kind of have a much more broad, um, but maybe a little bit more loose uh, freedom to do what you'd like, and situations where you're provided with a very specifically designed set of tools that interact with each other in a very specifically designed set of ways. Yeah, so like games like um, uh, Super Mario Maker, Dreams, uh, and even games like Halo and Little Big Planet, where they have level designers, I'd say those those specific aspects of the games are very toy box-like. 
Oh yeah, for sure. And, and we see that um, it's been added to a lot of games over the years. Um, I mean, even just recently, we've well, it, it happened in both 2013 and 2018, that is, um, with Super Smash Brothers, that they added uh, a stage creator. Um, and, you know, we saw a very similar thing with the uh, Link's Awakening remake that came out in 2019. Um, that, you know, toy box creators are very um uh, they're, they're a lot i would say somewhat more easy to implement in some cases but that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be good as we said because you know if you're making um a, a toy box game where you have that more limited set of options for the players and more limited set of interactions that your tools can have, then you have to make sure that that works really well and that those interactions are really fun and compelling enough to keep a player playing and being interested in creating something out of it. Oh, definitely. Um, while we're on the topic of, of toy box games, uh, can I throw out this idea right now? Uh, do you think that Mario Maker is only as successful as it is? Because Mario has been going on for long enough to have all of these assets. Hmm, that's uh, that's very interesting, and I would actually suggest not necessarily, um, because I think a very interesting thing that we've also seen recently within the past uh, several years, um, more recently than Mario Maker at least, has been a game called Celeste. Um, which is, if you aren't aware, um, a very kind of tight, uh, platformer game with a pretty limited, um, set of movement options, um, that relies heavily on mastery of those specific, um, kinds of movement. But that game has, um, but, but it does have, like, a lot of different kinds of hazards and a lot of different ways you can interact, um, with, the world like so falling platforms or later on it gets very complicated where you have these kind of platforms that move in a specific way depending on how you jump onto them um it's a really cool game i would really recommend it but we've seen a, a very significant modding community with that game uh where people will create their own custom levels um out of the tools that that game basically provides and i think it, it lends itself very well to uh, modding because it's you know it's a relatively um simple game in, in terms of how its levels are laid out but it's got all of these super interesting tools that can interact with each other in super interesting ways and i think that's basically um what mario maker is and, and so i do think that you know if you have those tools uh, as celeste has showed us um it doesn't necessarily uh, matter if you're kind of an IP that's existed for 30 plus years or one that's existed for like three years you can you can develop that kind of an experience okay okay well you know that makes a lot of sense I mean I'd, I'd say that it, it all comes down to game design in the end that if your game is not made to support user-made content then the user-made content will probably not be as as prevalent. But here's the thing. Do you think that Skyrim, for instance, one of the leading modding communities in the world, uh, do you think Skyrim's initial design was very open to user-made content? Whew, that's kind of a tough question. 
and it, it kind of does get to um an interesting point which is that like it's very difficult to determine in a lot of cases why um a, a big modding or user generated content community can develop around one game um and not another and i guess i guess my, my skyrim cred is that i've played a fair amount of it i've done like none of the main quests but i i've i've played like a solid more than 30 hours of the game which is I, I, like amateur numbers i know but um yes you you, you plebeian <laughs> but um i i do think that skyrim as like an ostensibly role-playing game um does kind of provide um a lot of the kind of tools that make it interesting to toy around with and um i i think that people's just interest in the game honestly could also be a major factor of it that it's just an immensely popular game but i I, i'd be interested in hearing your take about that well i think it's because um when you when you take a game like celeste and you mod that you you have to make a new level an entire level for skyrim the modern community usually focuses on like a small part of it. You know, this is you get sections that are player housing or new armor or uh, overhauls for character models or whatever. So very rarely do you get like it, it's usually a big event when there's a, a mod that overhauls the entire game. You know, like I remember there was a um, I forget the name of the mod. But it, it changed the entirety of the Skyrim, of Skyrim into a new game, using just all of its assets, and that was mind blowing. But yeah, for the most part, I think it's just that they they take small bits of Skyrim and mod them individually, and that's why you can have such a unique game experience because you can be combining, you know, seven different mods for seven different things. That actually makes a ton of sense. It also, um, kind of hand-in-hand hand with that, I would suggest the fact that a lot of the time, uh, people, specifically with Bethesda titles um, in more recent years, people um, are not always 100% satisfied with the ways that certain parts of the game can work. And it can be really small elements, um, but the ability and, and the... The focus of a modding community around more kind of small scale changes can make it so that, you know, um, specifically just changes that, you know, alter like one tiny thing that has been annoying you about the way that the game works can become really successful. I mean, yeah, quality of life. Like Stardew Valley has a, a big modding community just for quality of life improvements, adding new characters. I mean, I was I was going to a because I'm cool and interesting. I was going to a, a Magic the <laughs> Gathering party at a friend's house, and the guy who I was traveling with, uh, we were talking about Stardew Valley, and he told me that he had gotten mods for it that made the game like a hundred hours longer. Oh man! And that's the thing is is even if you if you just download a like a small mod. That adds a little bit. You can pump so much content into a game. I mean, if you have one new character. 
Yeah, and especially in like a, a social simulator, at least in part, like Stardew Valley. Yeah, like adding that kind of thing can massively increase the amount of conflict, uh, not conflict, amount of content. Um, and as as you were saying, the ability for mods that kind of aren't necessarily total overhauls, but um, influence more one uh, area of the game can allow for that amount of content to be incredibly um, inflated just by, you know, adding a new character here or adding some, you know, new kind of gameplay element there. Yeah, but, you know, um, I think a, a big problem with user-made content is that it's very PC-specific. You know, you, you don't get a whole lot of user-made stuff on on consoles. Yeah, and that that's something that makes me very sad in a lot of cases. Um, specifically, the the Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild came out in in 2017 for the Wii U and uh, the Switch. Um, in that game, it, I believe it presents like this very very good bedrock for modding oh, because definitely. it's a game that has like a very solid gameplay foundation. But also that a lot of people think is a little bit lacking um, in content in certain areas. And that game has actually been successfully emulated on PC. And even with the, you know, I have to imagine somewhat limited um, PC Breath of the Wild player user base um, already has like a ton of mods. A lot of them are pretty um, surface level or cosmetic, like new, um, armor additions or new weapons or being able to play a Zelda or something. But more recently, uh, we've seen mods that add entirely new NPCs, buildings, um, characters, and it, it kind of makes me sad, one, that, like, most players of the game won't get to experience that stuff, but also just imagining if modding was more accessible on consoles, what what that could be like if that's what it is now i i can't even imagine how robust that community would be if it was more accessible i mean i i think if breath of the wild was moddable on consoles it could have been the next skyrim oh for modding sure. community wise but you know what game really sticks out in my mind is persona 5 Oh, yeah. Because I I never bought Persona 5. I borrowed it from a friend, and I started playing it, and I got, like, quite a ways into it. And then Persona 5 Royal came out. And I ended up buying that. But Persona 5 Royal is a far better version of Persona 5 because it has so many mm. quality-of-life improvements. And if there was a... Yeah, ha having played both, the... The, the difference is kind of staggering. I mean, yeah, yeah. People will say, like, oh, it's it's just the same game. It is not by any means the same game. I mean, you, um, you get extra time slots, for one thing. Your cat stops telling you to go to sleep. Thank God. Uh, but but here's the here's the thing that I was I was mulling around. If that game had been moddable. I might, and I had bought Persona 5 instead of borrowing it from one of my very kind friends. I might have had to, I might have been able to just mod my version of Persona 5 rather than having to buy another game. Mm hmm. And no, absolutely. And I think, I think games that are released with updates like. 
P5R, and I, I know that P5R does have other content, but you know, it's a standalone that expansion, kind of thing, isn't it? It's, it's just an expansion pack for the game. Yeah, essentially, um, and it you do raise a great point there, which is that those kinds of things really would not be necessary, I don't think, because I can I can imagine like a, a weeks after Persona Five was released, if it had been moddable, there would have been a Morgana doesn't tell you to go to bed as often mod. There would have been probably even additional character mods. There would have been you know all of these improvements that Persona Five Royal offers you know, I think would have been pretty readily provided by a modding community. Yeah, and do you think that it's just because consoles are harder to code for? Or do you think that it's this... Because I, I've kind of gotten this feeling over the years that when a, a developer's game gets onto console, it becomes, like, sacred. I'm not I'm not super certain as to the reasons, but I do know that it's not because it's just harder. Um the Wii has an incredibly robust modding community, specifically for uh Super Smash Bros. Brawl comes to mind. But you know, these days, like most people who have a lot of people who have Wii's, um, they're hacked because it's not very hard to do, and the mods are there's there's tons of them. Super Smash Bros. Brawl actually has a really, really robust modding community, um, and the game even has essentially uh, a complete overhaul mod called uh, Project M, which adds a ton of new characters, uh, new stages, new costumes for existing characters. Um, I think it also might adjust the balancing for um, existing characters, but I might be wrong about that. But yeah, it's this, like, really great mod, and it's it's on the Wii, which, you know, people, like, even developers com complained about being kind of difficult for them to develop for, but, like, you know what? Like, um, the, I don't think it is a matter of it being too difficult on consoles. I, I really don't. Mm. I, because I, I remember, like, um, Nintendo and Sony and stuff being so adamant to pull off that's that's take that sentence out of context um <laughs> they were so adamant to to take down let's plays uh from games recorded mm -hmm. on consoles and things because they didn't want it to spoil the story and it's that it's that specific phrasing you know like the idea that if you allowed modding onto consoles it would in some way impact the experience and if I, I'm not saying that's true. I have no evidence to support that that's true. But if that is the case, then why not include a feature in your game where you aren't allowed to mod it until you've beaten the game? And that doesn't even have to be in every single game. That can just be on the, the PlayStation Store or whatever. Like, you, you can't access mm -hmm. the modding community for this game until you've beaten the game. That would be a, a very a very Nintendo thing to do, but I, but actually we have seen things uh, kind of like it. I believe in the original Persona Five. Um, I don't think you're allowed to take screenshots of the game on PlayStation until you uh, have reached New Game Plus, or you might not be able to at all. But I think it is. I think you do get the option once you've beaten the game once already. Um, and so, like, they aren't at all, I think, averse to doing that kind of thing. And doing that with mods would kind of address 
their issue that they want people to experience, well, the experience that they created to begin with, and then basically allow you to do whatever you want. Because I think that it's definitely the case that some people who play a game once um, aren't necessarily going to pick it up again, um, but if they do have the option to mod and to bring in all this new content that, you know, the developers weren't going to add to begin with, then I, I think that can only really be a win for the, the publisher of the game. I mean, yeah, it, it adds replayability. Because a lot of the time with, with games, it's not just necessarily about how many people buy it and how many people download it. It's about how many people continue playing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these days especially sustained playership is more important than ever mm. well we're getting pretty close to the hour mark so let me ask you one last question and then i think we'll we'll go into the plug dimension all right but yeah i'm not going to call it that in the future i st- i steal en- <laughs> i steal enough oh, no, from- i think i think you should no i, I think you should. i steal enough from my brother <laughs> my brother and me already um so the last question is what what do you think the future of user made content is? You know what? Um, I I want to end this on an optimistic note, uh, <laughs> and I I do I do believe that you know user made content it's not going anywhere. It's been here forever. It's still around, um, and it's still going places. And I think that the fact that we're seeing things like like dreams and mario maker kind of indicate that developers are starting to recognize um the importance of that and you know the importance of those kinds of communities around games unfortunately um the fact that developers are in some cases trying to take advantage of that also demonstrates that it's becoming more recognized but you know what? I, I really do, especially with our conversation about consoles, I, I really do hope that the next step is making that available and accessible because we do know it's possible. Um, and we do know how like how much that can um, massively increase the lifespan of a game. The fact that people are playing still in, in 2021, a 2007 Wii game that people widely consider on, you know, it's base version to be one of the worst in the series that they're still playing that is kind of incredible and i I do hope that developers publishers um console uh creators will kind of wake up to the fact that 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 would be really good for them if they were to allow it yeah i think i i totally agree i think the next step has to be mods for consoles that's that's almost a no-brainer like that's that's the next big leap in the community but um, you know what I'm excited to see is, and we, boy, we haven't done this in a long time, but you know what, Realm? I see a, a bright light in the distance, a, uh, a bright, shiny light, and f- down from it, several words written horizontally and then flipping up to reveal what they are have, have descended in front of me. It's Elder Scrolls Six. And it brings it oh, with baby. it the eternal question on this specific podcast. Hey, Todd. Where the fuck is Elder Scrolls 6, Todd? Um. <laughs> Todd, what the fuck are you doing <laughs> Who can there? say? Who can say? But I'm... I'm 
Uh, I we did just get revealed the uh, the new Battlefield game, which takes place pre Elder Scrolls Six, actually twenty forty two. Yeah, uh, Todd, Battlefield Six is coming out before Elder Scrolls Six, anyway. <laughs> um, well, we've ragged on Todd for a bit now, so so I can I can fulfill that blood pact that I have, but. What I am excited for Elder Scrolls Six is to see if the modding community gets anywhere close to what Skyrim had, because this is the first Elder Scrolls game we've had in years. Yeah, it's it's going to be really something, and it is going to be really interesting to see if that happens, because it's not always the case that it will carry over. I mean, we saw, like, Imperator Rome by Paradox Interactive. Um it doesn't really have a great modding community. There's a lot of stuff to fix in that game, and it just didn't really carry over. So it's going to be really interesting to see if it does carry over um, into Elder Scrolls Six. Maybe it'll just be too good to mod. No one will even know what to do. Oh, okay. We can... Like Cyberpunk. We, we can, yeah, we can we can stand around and, and be optimistic all we want, but let's not outright lie. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. Here's hoping that I Elder mean, Scrolls... You know what? Sorry. I can confirm to you that Todd Howard is not in my room right now. I, I've never had any interaction with the man, and he's never threatened me before. Uh, we, we have to edit, like, an ominous clicking noise <laughs> of, like, a gun hammer when you say that. I'm not going to do that, but I said it so that you can all imagine it. Anyway. Yeah. Um, you, can, you, can, you can play it back and, and just think about it. You can, you can do a sound effect with your mouth if you want, actually. <laughs> No, that sounds so terrible in audio, please. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I said that directly after I did it. Anyway, um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. I really hope that Elder Scrolls Six takes place in Black Marsh. I have to say. I, I am not familiar enough with the, the Elder Scrolls universe to really have a, a prediction um, or a hope. But you know what? I, I, I'm excited nonetheless. Um, I'm definitely going to play it. Um, I mean, we'll see. Well, the reason I say so is because Black Marsh is where the Argonians come from, so that's rad. You fast travel by having a giant worm eat you, which is also rad. And if it was in a marsh, all of the bugs would be, you know, well hit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, the... (laughs) (laughs) The... uh... I don't know that the, the worm sounds cool. That, I'm on board. That was a terrible, a terrible joke, and we we walked miles <laughs> to get there. But we're here now. We're in the last five minutes, and if you've made it this far, congratulations, you survived. But if you do genuinely enjoy what we did here today, then please check out the other video we did on Realms Channel, which we will have, depending on whether this one or that one goes up first, we'll have a link to it. But as soon as that one goes up, we'll probably add a link anyway. Realm, do you want to plug anything? Hell yeah. So, I mean, first of all, that video, we talked about um, censorship. We talked about uh, a lot of stuff, actually, but that will be on my channel, which is Realm W on YouTube. I talk about politics, um, video games, things that annoy me. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter um, at Realm W underscore video. Um, Realm W was taken, god damn it. Uh, but uh, I post there about how I'm totally still making YouTube videos, um, and also my assorted E3 predictions. So 
you can check me out in either of those places. I would be super pleased to see you there. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. This was a blast. I loved uh, making this podcast episode. I loved recording um, that other video with you. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a really fun experience. And funnily enough, Bite Marks was also taken on YouTube, which is why we're at Bite Marks Cast. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so uh, on that topic, if you want to support the channel, please follow us at Bite Marks Cast on Twitter. Uh, I think it's also at Bite Marks Cast on Instagram, but you can find the links to all of our socials in the About page of our YouTube channel. And please check out our Patreon. But you know what? Patreon's a commitment. That's an every month thing. So I get that some people don't want to spend money like that. So if you're if you're one of those people who isn't keen on the every month thing, buy us a coffee. But what I really need you guys to do, please, is share this video around. Like on like it. Comment on it if you can, because that really helps us with the algorithm. And please check out our Curious Cat. We're trying to do a, a Q&A video for reaching 500 uh, subscribers. Because milestones are important, guys. And uh, we need some new questions. So please do that. Please check out Realm stuff. This has been Bite Marks, reminding you to ask the very important question. What the fuck, Todd? What the fuck, Todd? What the fuck, Todd? Well, thank you for listening. And ciao. Bye.